the value of understanding people's backstory. The more that you can understand an individual, their situation and how they have formed into what they are, I think you are far able to get a lot more out of them as a result and just be a better boss to them as a result because you're far more sympathetic to their situation and empathetic as well. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. My guest today is Scott Lego, a veteran of 10 years service in the Royal Australian Air Force as a weapons and tactics officer with operational service in the war against Iraq. On the back of his military service, Scott continued to serve his country as an Australian diplomat before transitioning to a career as a management consultant. He was most successful as a trusted business advisor to senior executives in government and the private sector in Australia and internationally. Scott's passion for landscape photography has seen him take a significant change in direction, growing a highly successful business, providing premium quality Australian-made artwork to clients nationally and internationally. Widely recognised as one of Australia's leading landscape photographers, Scott is the recipient of over 100 Australian and international awards and has been awarded the coveted title of Master of Photography by the Australian Institute of Professional Photography. What I loved about our conversation was the simple approaches to leadership and the perspective that comes from being an entrepreneur with a rich professional career in the military, the diplomatic corps and consulting. Let's get right in. Well, Scott Lego, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show, mate. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Martin. A pleasure to be here and congratulations on the podcast. Great to see you you sharing uh, leadership lessons with a wide audience. Yeah, thanks, mate. So the question I always ask the guests first up is, how did you end up joining the service, in your case, the Royal Australian Air Force? Look, I think like many, you know, I had a long-term interest in joining. So for me, it started quite early. I had a father who was an air traffic controller. I grew up near Resident Airport in Melbourne. I had aunties and uncles who worked for ANSET, one as a pilot, uh, one as a hostie, uh, another auntie who was a travel agent. So I think, you know, I was surrounded by aviation and from you know, quite a young age, I had decided that I really wanted to be a pilot and I remember having a conversation with dad as this was getting a bit more serious around probably around year seven. Right. <laughs> and I think dad was probably a little bit horrified by the prospect of, of him having to try and fund some of my pilot training. And he said, oh, you realize that if you, you know, the Air Force can train you for free, you know, and I, that probably is what awakened me to the Air Force and that as an option. Probably up until that point, I'd been thinking, you know, largely commercial pilot. And so while I was at, you know, high school, I joined the Air Training Corps, now the Air Force Cadets. So that was a definite great insight into the Air Force, furthering that, you know, interest and passion both in aviation, but also, you know, in the military more broadly. And also from a leadership perspective, I think as well, that opened my eyes to the fact that there was more than just, you know, flying and that, you know, the kind of greater responsibility that, that comes with serving with other people. So, yeah, I then had a very, very focused, very dedicated approach to joining the Air Force through high school, much to my parents' frustration. They were wanted to try and take me to different university open days and things like that, but I was very single-minded on uh, you know joining the Defence Force Academy and joining the Air Force as a pilot. And fortunately for me, uh, with not too many other you know Plan B options that were you know serious options, I, I was lucky to get into the Air Force and, and go to ADFA. Yeah, it's often the case, isn't it? In my experience in talking to people is that people joining the Defence Force are actually quite singly focused when they get to that point and obviously want that that's their dream and there's no plan B. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think, you know, that's probably an interesting, you know, point around, you know, those that do have that kind of quite singular focus and, and are very motivated towards that. And I think, you know, it's interesting when you look at a lot of people who have achieved success and even maybe they'd identify themselves as not being the smartest person or the most gifted person in whatever field that they've chosen. But tenacity certainly is a trait that comes through, you know, a lot of those people that, that achieve success where they feel that they may not have been top of the class, but they got there through, mm. you know, that kind of determination and, and tenacious attitude. So I don't know whether that was a factor, but I was certainly very singularly focused on what I wanted to do there. Yeah. My might revisit that when we talk about what you're doing now. 
We often exposed to leadership early in our careers. I'm curious about who your leadership heroes were, your influences growing up either before the Air Force or early in your military career. Yeah, look, I think, you know, like anyone who has, has had a range of experiences, I don't know that there's one, for me, there's not one single person or or event that stands out. It's a formation over a number of years, and I've certainly seen good and bad examples of leadership. I think for me, you know, joining the Air Training Corps, getting exposed to, you know, leadership training, you know, while I was at high school, uh, certainly probably made me far more aware of even teachers at my school and those that were able to to really, you know, extract, you know, good performance out of students versus some other teachers. So I think it probably started quite early in seeing some good and bad examples there. Certainly, obviously, going through ADFA, you know, where there was such a great focus on, you know, leadership, you certainly, you know, pay a lot of attention to, to individuals and, and to others around. So I guess my way of describing that is that I guess I've just seen probably good and bad examples over the over the years and continue to see that now. And I guess I'm always trying to pick up or look at other people and you know, almost like internally kind of debrief about, well, why is that person doing so well or what is it that I don't like about uh, that particular situation and hopefully build a, a growing kind of formation of ideas or what I think is right in my head. So I guess if you'd asked me 20 years ago what my idea of leadership was, it's probably evolved and changed to what it is now just through my own experience and also, I guess, you know, studying other people and then obviously, you know, just reading books. I remember reading uh, Colin Powell's book, I think, in my first year at ADFA and that was probably one of the first dedicated books I recall, you know, kind of reading that was, you know, quite a large component of leadership in it and that I guess probably got me onto the journey of then realizing the value of, you know, of reading even, you know, from people that you may not have the luxury of meeting in person or experiencing their leadership firsthand, but, you know, that you can still learn from others. So, yeah, that's probably a very long-winded answer to say that there's no one single person, but I guess it's accumulation of lots of experiences and probably academic study as well. Mm. And I think that's important for anyone. Yeah, well, what it does say is actually it's a growth mindset that actually says that I'm always open, I'm always watching, I'm always observing and using that to calibrate my own choices around uh, leadership. What would you say now, based upon that 20 plus years of, of observation, is that, you know, what are the characteristics of good leadership, do you think, today? The characteristics of good leadership, I think, is it's around, I think about things quite simply now, I think, you know, rather than trying to come up with kind of you know, a complex model or anything like that. I go back to quite a basic model, you know, which was around functional leadership that we were taught at ADFA, which was around understanding, you know, how you prioritize individual needs, group needs, and, and the task needs. And, you know, for me, that's a model that has stuck with me. And I guess I've probably interpreted that maybe slightly different to the true academic form around kind of action-centered leadership. But it says to me that, you know, as a leader, I have to sit there and I have to balance what are individual needs at the time, and that might mean that I have to prioritise an individual's need at that particular moment in time over, you know, the group or the task needs. But equally, when you're, you know, in a military context, quite mission focused, you know, that those task needs have to take priority. But you recognise that you're weighting that quite heavily, and therefore you know, you're paying less attention, quite deliberately, to perhaps those individual or the group needs. But then, you know, once that task orientation has, you know, diminished, you have to kind of reprioritise those others. So, for me, it's a constant kind of balance of those three things that are going on in my mind about recognizing you know which one do I have to focus on and perhaps something might come up with you know an individual or the group that you have to kind of reprioritize so mm. I think that's quite a good basic model but it's it's very applicable and I think sometimes we can overcomplicate you know models or, or how we think about leadership but for me I think that's really important because two parts of that model are focused on people as opposed to the task. And I think, you know, for me, leadership is very people-centered. Mm -hmm. And to achieve what you need to as a leader and to get performance out of your people naturally means that you've got to focus on people. Mm. But equally, you can't do that at the expense of working out what that outcome is. So for me, it's a great, you know, model that has kind of stuck with me over that time. And I probably interpret that, you know, slightly differently as time goes on and I've evolved that in my own mind. But mm. yeah, that's probably something that stuck with me. Yeah. I recently came to codify what you've just talked about as tasks are functional or transactional and people are relational. And actually with relationship, you can go deeper and you get more discretionary effort from people. 
Yeah, and I think central to all of that is people. Yeah. And I think that's what we've, we've got to always keep in mind. Yeah. You graduate from the Defence Academy and head off to uh, pilot's course. What was the next part of your career? Yeah, so look, I was someone who I flew my first solo in an aircraft at 16. So I could fly a plane before I was, or legally fly a plane before I was legally allowed to drive a car. So, you know, heading off to pilot's course was, you know, very much, you know, central to probably my identity in a sense that I'd always identified as wanting to be you know, a pilot and then wanting to join an Air Force pilot. But like many, I didn't make it through pilot's course. So that, you know, was a really big, you know, kind of life shift, life impact on me. But I really wanted to stay in the Air Force. I, I really had a, a love for, for the Air Force and just still aviation more broadly. Uh, so I was very lucky to then, you know, to stay in the Air Force, uh, went on to be a, a weapons and tactics instructor for fighter air crew mm-hmm. within air combat group. So very lucky to spend most of my career with fighter pilots and very lucky to then experience, you know, quite a number of flights in F-18 in the in the back seat. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for a guy that failed pilots course, you know, I got to quite a, a lot of time in an F-18, which was great. And that really exposed me to, you know, really high performance teams, you know, an elite group of individuals that are very focused, you know, very, very good at achieving uh, outcomes, results, exposed me to, to some terrific frameworks, mm-hmm. especially around achieving outcomes, high performance, but also some terrific leaders uh, there. So yeah, ended up uh, then, you know, towards the end of my career, went to Iraq in 2003, which was a great culmination of actually being able to put those things into practice when we deployed uh, 75 Squadron over there, our uh, fighter squadron as part of the initial invasion of Iraq. Mm. Then, you know, like many people, I uh, did my last posting in Canberra and then uh, joined the public service, uh, went across to, to foreign affairs and trade and, and had a great experience there. And again, you know, similar to the Air Force where, you know, you're kind of representing the country, you know, a lot of service, you know, foreign affairs was great in that sense to be doing that. And then after I left foreign affairs, I actually went full time into my own business. But like a lot of people who kind of make that transition, the income was very up and down. And I probably realized that I didn't know as much about businesses as maybe I thought I did or I wasn't able to apply it. So uh, the opportunity to join a management consulting firm came up. So I ended up joining a company called Booze & Company, which at the time was one of the top tier management consulting firms. And I feel like I crammed an MBA into my first 12 months there, which flicked a switch in my mind. And I wish it had earlier, but it made me realize that a lot of the frameworks and the methodologies that I had been taught and I had learned in the Air Force were actually applicable to business outside. And I think when I joined the public service, some of that kind of military thinking was kind of beaten out of me mm-hmm. a little bit. And I think suddenly I realized that actually, no, there was some really great foundations there, both from a leadership point of view, but also how to structure things, processes, systems, and, and so forth. And that really made a big switch in my head where I realized that the value of, of what I had learned in the military. Mm-hmm. And so then I started to kind of reapply myself on the side, essentially as a bit of a side hustle to my business and, and that really started to pay dividends. And so now mm. I run my own business as a, as a landscape photographer selling uh, wall art and gifts yeah. to people around Australia and, and overseas. And it's substantial now. I want to take you back into that time in the Air Force though. I mean, we know it doesn't go well all the time. What was one of those biggest lessons from your service career in terms of leadership or how you personally turn up? as a leader so look i was i was very lucky while i was at uh, the defense force academy in my third year Uh, so in my third year i think adfa had about nearly a thousand cadets and there was a third year hierarchy structure which basically gave third year cadets you know the opportunity to practice leadership you know within that training environment and in my third year i was what was called a, a squadron cadet captain so i was essentially the academy was broken up into six different squadrons and i was the cadet in charge of 170, 180 people at 20 years old. So I was mm. felt like I was definitely thrown in the deep end and I actually had some quite kind of formative leadership lessons uh, through that experience. But one of the things that really kind of stood out to me during that time and has stuck with me since and I continue to see this was that I think we can have all these kind of great models around leadership or what have you, but what I really found was that getting to the heart of you know any issues that, that existed with people really required an understanding of someone's, what I would describe as their backstory. Mm. And lots of times, you know, you would, you know, essentially, you know, you, you might have had an issue with an individual or something and you would bring them in and, and sit them down and you've probably experienced this yourself. But, you know, it's amazing the number of times that someone will be in tears in front of you in not that long a period of time before you've actually kind of sat down with them 
And I think often then the moment you get them to open up and you understand some of their backstory and some of the issues that, that may have happened in their past kind of explains a little bit about their current performance or their current issues. But mm-hmm. that is both empowering for the individual that they've been able to tell that story and also for you to understand that. In one case, I remember you know, I had one lady who had had quite a traumatic experience that you know no woman should ever have to go through and it was a shock to me because I had absolutely zero awareness of that prior to this conversation it explained so many things about that person's behavior that person's performance but what it also did was you know in an empathetic sense for me just I felt bad that I had never really kind of truly understood or appreciated that Mm. and it was quite a that conversation was quite formative for me and that I've had a number of conversations like that since where I just really realized that as a leader you got to be very careful about judging people just off what you see and that you do need to try and take the time and the effort to really understand someone's backstory if, if you want to use that terminology and what their past and what their history is because I think you know leadership for me is also about you know human psychology and it's about understanding you know, people as an individual and how do you kind of get the maximum out of them. And if you can better understand them as an individual and how they've got to where they are now, it's really, really important. And I think the more I look at people, even today, you know, even friends of mine where they've had certain events in their life that still can be quite impactful on how they behave or how they view the world now. And the more you can understand that about an individual the more you can actually help them and it can help shape how you deal with them going forward. So mm. in terms of formative, you know, experiences, you know, doing that kind of role at, at age 20 yeah, absolutely. Was, was quite powerful for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many points in that that I wanted to talk to, I guess. One is that understanding what empathy is. I mean, at the end of the day, if you haven't had that experience, empathy is actually really just saying that, you know, I don't know what you're feeling right now, but I'm here to support you. You know, we often sort of want to just jump in and sort of try and solve a problem, but learning at 20 that you need to sit back and just let that person talk and, and not sort of jump in believing you actually understand that situation completely is important. And I think that, I think, you know, in a, in a military context, that is, is really important too because, you know, as an officer, you know, in either of the services in the military, you're often quite young and you're in charge of people who are often you know a lot older than you have a lot more experience and I think you can't pretend that you know everything that they've been through but you what you can do and I think what you have to do is you have to realize that you have to be genuinely you know interested in their story and trying to understand it and you may not be able to understand it because you haven't experienced it yourself but you've got to do the best that you can Mm. and think about well how do I accommodate that and so equally I think you know Empathy is about recognizing also that maybe if I, I haven't experienced that, I don't understand that, what can I go and do to try and learn more about that particular issue or, or that particular experience that someone might have had? Mm. I think we're very blessed in our current world where we've got access to so much information that you know we can go online and we can research something to at least build our knowledge base about a particular issue or, or something that someone may have experienced that we haven't done ourselves, but we'll hopefully allow us to be a little bit more understanding of that issue. So I think we're quite lucky yeah. in today's day and age around that. Yeah, I guess the other thing that comes up is that, you know, we all have a story, we all have a unique story and that narrative, you know, helping people to understand that that doesn't necessarily need to define them but it can actually be a, a point of learning. You know, and as leaders, sometimes we can contribute to that but sometimes people actually need professional support to really help understand what that story is, noting that sort of much of what they've experienced is a duality that they're going to will always have in their life, that they actually need to find a way in which to, you know, be at peace with it, but also take lessons from it to help them grow and develop and be their best selves. I think it's a really good point that you make there around, you know, that we may not be the experts, but maybe they need to, to seek professional help. And I think when you're dealing with a small team, you know, as a leader, as opposed to someone that maybe is in charge of a, of a big organization, you know, I think you have the opportunity to steer that person potentially in the right direction. So it might be someone is, you know, struggling with financial management through to maybe, you know, some trauma that they've experienced in the past. But I think as a leader, if we can create a supportive environment and be supportive to them 
and that helps them go and seek that professional help or we point them in that direction, you know, we are being someone that is helping facilitate that, that maybe it, it wouldn't have otherwise happened. And I think that that is a critical role that we can play because as, as that individual, if they understand that you as a leader are there trying to support them and that you can't directly support them because it's not your subject area, but you're steering them in the right direction, I think, you know, people generally you know, appreciate that. And I think that's a great role that mm. you know, we as leaders can, can play to support our people. Yeah. And I guess the last thing is that... Because we don't have all the answers. Yeah, no. <laughs> I learned that quite a few times, actually. The other thought was there that, you know, when you are, somebody does come to you and says, hey, this is what's happened to me as a leader, you have no choice. You know, as uh, Lieutenant General David Morrison said famously in that uh, video, it's the stand you walk past, the stand you accept. And and you actually, in, in that moment, you have no choice but to take the appropriate action, intervene. It's not something you can just cover up. No, but equally, I think some of those situations require you to, so obviously in that moment, you know, you have to be there. But equally, I think sometimes you have to be equally honest with, you know, your team or, or the individual to say, hey, right now, I need to kind of go away and, and think about this to think about how I can best help you. Mm. That, you know, I think we can kind of get bombarded and feel that we have to kind of solve that person's problem, oh, yeah. you know, right there in the moment. But I think, you know, for me, you know, going away, you know, the old adage of, you know, go and sleep on the problem and, and think about it, you know, overnight kind of thing is, is very valid in those cases. And also sometimes it might mean that as a leader, we need to go away and talk to some other people and, and get some other people's perspective or, or find out where, you know, we can point that person in, in terms of that direction and, and where that professional help may be. Yeah. So, yeah, I think a good lesson there for me is, you know, you don't have to solve that problem mm. right there and then in that very moment. But what we can do as a leader is make that person aware that we're, we're on it and that we're, we're looking for, you know, how we can help that person down track. Yeah. And we obviously have to then carry through on that. Yeah. So you've had a couple of transitions. What was the transition like from Air Force having been your, you know, your dream as a kid to going, leaving, heading off to foreign affairs? Yeah, an interesting one for me. I think when I joined foreign affairs, there was, you got to remember that, you know, it's an organization that, you know, similar to the Air Force, certainly it was at the time, was an organization that was quite similar to the military in the sense that most of the people that were at foreign affairs had essentially kind of joined through a grad program or had kind of joined, you know, out of uni rather than, you know, too many kind of what we would call kind of lateral recruits. Mm. So those people like myself that, that came from the, the military were a little bit on the outside. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that kind of military approach, that military mindset, even the way we kind of dress was, I don't know whether it was frowned upon is probably too harsh, but it, it was definitely not the culture that was foreign affairs when I went into it at the time. And so I think I felt like I had to conform to that culture a little bit, which meant kind of really trying to suppress some of my military background or, or what have you. And even in meetings, I recall, you know, you would talk about, you know, well, in the military, this is what we would do. And that was, I felt at times that that was not always welcome. Mm -hmm. So for me, part of that transition was really suppressing some of that kind of military background in order to fit into a new culture, which I found, you know, probably on reflection, a little bit difficult to do that because I think up to that point, you know, my military identity was a very core cool part of who I was. And as a result, I think it made me probably not apply some of those kind of military frameworks or methodologies to some of what I did, which was probably a disadvantage. And so, but other than that, you know, my transition was fine, but I think I did go from an organization where, you know, you've got great networks, great contacts, doesn't matter where you go, you're surrounded by a bunch of individuals that, you know, you've worked worked with for a number of years and you've established yourself and I felt like when I joined Foreign Affairs, I was almost having to kind of start again and, and establish my credibility and, and establish my credentials. So that was a bit of a, of a challenge, whereas I think you know, when you're in the military, just by virtue of rank or by virtue of what category you're in or by virtue of your kind of reputation, everyone understands kind of where you fit in. Whereas for me, when I transitioned across you know, to the public service, I really felt like I was having to, to start again mm. around that. So you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it was definitely, it was definitely a challenge in that regard yeah in hindsight looking back is there you know advice to others that are transitioning from active service in the military to you know whatever it might be what are the two or three things you think people need to perhaps focus on as they transition 
Yeah, so look, for me, I think I know a lot of people struggle with the fact that they kind of leave and very much a lot of their identity is, is tied. So I think, you know, trying to maintain those connections, maintain those contacts, at least in a, in a social setting is very, very important because mm. I think if you just suddenly kind of cut that umbilical cord literally overnight and kind of step away from it in its entirety, it, it is a big shock to the system. Whereas I think, you know, the word transition to me implies that that's occurring over over a period of time rather than that simple cut. Whereas for me, it felt like literally kind of cutting that umbilical cord straight away. So I would definitely encourage people to think about it as a transition, which means that, you know, you're kind of doing it over time rather than stepping away straight away. But equally, you know, I think don't be ashamed of what you have learned, experienced when you've been in the military. That'd probably be my second point mm. is that, you know, you do have something to contribute. You do have something to bring to the table and I think, you know, as employers are looking for people who are getting out of the military, they're looking at ex-military people for a reason because ex-military people can bring something to the table. And so I think that we should be, you know, aware that we're stepping into a different environment, a different culture and be sensitive to that, but also recognize that, you know, we do have something to, to bring that may be a different perspective. And it's just trying to get that balance right would probably be my, my other point there. Mm. You know, my, my third point would probably be around, don't be afraid equally to not take some degree of, of discomfort. I think at the moment I see a lot of people who are transitioning essentially stepping out of the military and stepping into a very similar role. So they might be stepping out of the military, essentially going and joining a defense contract, doing largely the same role that they're doing. And that's a very, what I would call like a soft transition. You know, they're staying in the same environment. They're staying with people that they've worked with. But be aware that there are so many more opportunities out there other than just stepping into defense industry or a very like-minded job. Mm. And I think, you know, my experience is very much of that given what I do now is that it's got nothing to do with my previous service. And I think, you know, what service and military people are quite good at is what I talk about is, you know, comfortable being uncomfortable. We're used to being posted every couple of years. We're used to stepping into new and uncomfortable environments. And if you treat your first job out of defense in, in a similar way, just as another posting and something else that I've got to step into and, and rapidly, you know, assimilate new information and things like that, then I think mm. you'll get greater comfort that you can step into something that may not be defense industry. Yeah. Your role in management consulting sort of had you involved in a couple of really key projects and, you know, as a trusted advisor to senior executives in government and the private sector, both here in Australia and overseas. And, you know, contributing to $100 billion worth of, uh, of capital projects. What did you learn there that the military didn't teach you? I think what the military didn't teach me that I picked up there was it's probably around that backstory, but it's less about the individual backstory. It's more about the kind of the corporate backstory. I think the moment that you step into bigger organizations, the problems and the issues are the same. They've just got more zeros or they're just kind of they're bigger. And... I think, you know, in stepping into and working with some really big companies, you know, overseas, that political, the backstory is the political dimension or its corporate history. You know, I remember working with a big company that was a big global company in Korea and you know, they were very, very focused on the fact that they'd missed out on a couple of key contracts in previous iterations and that was a really, really big driver about their current behavior. And so unless you understood that backstory, unless you understood what was really, they'd sacked CEOs because they hadn't won previous contracts. So when you went in and um, you know, went in and met the existing CEO, you know, he was definitely under the pump, a whole lot of pressure. But if you didn't understand that backstory, you probably didn't understand why he was pushing in, in certain directions that you know, at first blush, you might be like, oh, I don't know whether you know, that kind of makes sense. And that's the right thing to do. But when you understood that backstory, mm. and so again, I, I think it's just really recognizing that those issues are just they're similar, but they're just different in scale. And you know, when you start talking at an organizational level, the backstory is an organization's sixty, hundred year history that is potentially shaping what's going on now, rather than just talking about an individual who might have had something happen to them in their past. You now got to understand the entire culture and the entire organizational history. And if you don't understand that backstory at that organizational level, then you're going to struggle to to then at an organizational level achieve the effect that you want. So mm. I think, you know, the other thing that's kind of related to that is then around, you know, kind of networks and how interconnected people are. I think, you know, when we first joined the military, we're in, in quite isolated, you know, silos where we're in at a small unit level 
the only people we know are at that unit or the people that we kind of joined with. And, and over time, as you move up, you know, your network and your connections start to spread across the in, entire organization. And that means that you are able to leverage those, you know, connections and those networks and, and people or contacts that might be able to help out with you there. And I think, I don't know that I felt when I was in the military that I was probably set up to understand the power of networks and the power of those connections and where people can help you. Mm. And I'm amazed at where now, you know, people that I have worked with previously, you know, in places all over the world, and you may not have seen someone for 20 or 25 years, and suddenly you're able to, you know, solve a problem quite quickly because there is that connection. So mm. that's probably the, the second aspect of, of that. Yeah, no, that's great, great thoughts and advice there. And we often sort of dismiss those things. But, you know, I think that lifting the lid understanding what that story is, you know, and being able to connect with that and to understand it, so important, and those networks. And this proves that, you know, you don't need to burn bridges uh, as you go through life. You never know when it might be important to have that connection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Your side hustle of photography is now the main game. What was that like, transitioning to, like, stepping into this entrepreneurial, you know, business of landscape photography and, and all that goes with that. Yeah, so look, now I run a business where essentially I travel around Australia and take landscape photographs and then we sell them through a gallery that I have in Canberra and through our online store. And, you know, that is actually a business that is, is far greater than myself. We obviously have a team and so now I'm very focused on, you know, how do I, as the owner, you know, alongside my wife, you know, extract the best performance we can as a small business. You know, this is now a small business. I'm not talking about, you know, some of the kind of big uh, dollar values that I've been working on, you know, with other businesses, you know, even just mm. just recently. But for me, it's actually more critical. You know, the, the leadership role, I guess, that I play, you know, as a small business owner is really, really critical to our success or not. And I think for me, being able to apply some of those leadership lessons and just general kind of operational lessons from defences has been critical. Mm. Equally, you know, I'm a director on you know the board of the Canberra Business Chamber now and, and things like that as well. So I try and make sure that you know, despite the smaller kind of scale of perhaps what I'm working on at the moment, I'm still applying those same principles, those same lessons. And so for me, I think part of the challenge is really is I don't necessarily have the infrastructure around me that you have when you're as part of a much bigger organisation. You know, I don't have an executive team. I don't have, you know, that kind of support that, that comes with that and you don't have a lot of all those organisational systems and processes in place. So I guess what I have to do as a result is be very, very focused on well, what is it that I need to be doing and what is it that are the, the key priorities that we need to be doing. But equally, I think you've heard me kind of speak about this previously, is the ability to kind of move, make decisions quickly and, and move quickly is, is critical. I think, you know, for us, you know, a good example for us was, you know, was during COVID when, you know, we could see that as a business, we were going to be locked down. We could see what was coming, that as a retail business, you know, we've got a physical store, that if that shut, that would have a massive impact on us as a business. And when you've suddenly got staff and you're responsible for them, you know, that weighs very heavily on your mind. So, you know, we kind of sat back and we're like, hey, we can see what's coming. What can we do? So we made the decision to turn a bunch of my photos into jigsaw puzzles. And it kind of went quite early on that. And I kid you not, we got them all up on the website after we'd found a supplier and so forth three hours before the, the Prime Minister, you know, essentially declared at one of his press conferences that he declared jigsaw puzzles as an essential item, <laughs> which was back at the time when, you know, you're only allowed to leave home to go shopping for essential items. And that kind of kicked off a big jigsaw puzzle wave in Australia. Right. And it was, for me, what happened in as a result of that, you know, we essentially had that kind of first mover advantage. We moved very, very quickly we kind of seen the environment and we made a decision kind of before some of that stuff was coming and we rode quite a jigsaw puzzle wave mm. around that, got a lot of media attention around the country and, and things like that. That kind of helped us get through COVID. But what I found incredible was, I kid you not, like nine or 12 months after we kind of launched those, we would get emails from other people around Australia. Uh, we're thinking about launching jigsaw puzzles. Like, can you tell us who your supplier is? And so firstly, it's kind of like, you know, go away. But... <laughs> The second thing that amazed me was you guys are like kind of nine or 12 months late to the party, you know, and it really reinforced to me that, you know, our success in that regard was because we did, you know, look at the environment and try and make some of those early calls and move quite quickly. You can't sit there and afford to, you know, wait for too long. Mm. And so, again, you know, I think, you know, the situation that we were in probably 12 months ago is, well, okay, what's going to be our post-COVID strategy and, and things like that? So I think that 
kind of military planning, that military operational kind of mindset that I guess I have been exposed to from my time in the military. I'm now applying to our small business to try and think, okay, we might be small, but how do we maximize the value and how do we kind of achieve a degree of impact from a small business that's greater than, you know, our size would suggest. And I think the military definitely set me up well for that. But equally, in a leadership sense, you know, I'm very conscious that we've got a small team and how do we kind of keep them motivated through those ups and downs of what is still, you know, a challenging time. You know, we're certainly not back to normal, but to give them confidence that, you know, me as as a leader of the business has got this gripped up and, you know, that we've got a plan and that we're working on things so that they are not looking around going, oh, I don't know whether, you know, this is kind of stable enough for me and, and then, you know, look to leave. So we're about, you know, making sure that we, you know, attract and also the retain the staff that we do. And part of that is really giving them confidence, especially in this environment as a small business that, you know, we are on top of it and that they are safe and secure. Yeah. What would be your best advice for the person who's either that starting out as that entrepreneur with a small team or a leader in corporate who's looking to take on more responsibility lean into leadership every day, what, what advice would you give them? I think my advice is to focus on performance. And, and what I mean by that is I think there's a lot of leadership advice, there's a lot of leadership, you know, approaches and that out there, but there's a lot of research out, you know, even just recently that basically says that those people that focus on performance will kind of, you know, grow and their leadership qualities will grow as a result of that rather than just if you just wake up every day and go, oh, I have to be a good leader, I think for me, leadership is about there's no point just being a good leader like it has to have a purpose and the reason that you're trying to get the most out of your people or what have you is to achieve an outcome and in a business sense it's you know it's normally around business performance or or so forth and i think you know my advice would be to focus on performance focus on what it is that you are looking to achieve you know as a business or, or get out of your team and something that, you know, has stuck with me, I came across this model when I was doing management consulting. A friend of mine who was in the in the British Army kind of introduced me to this and it, it's called the three C's. And it is basically says, you know, if you work on the assumption that everyone goes to work every day, you know, essentially with good intentions that they're going to do a good day's work and they, they want to achieve their an outcome. But if you're not getting something out of the, the team, you know, it's probably down to one of three things. It's either, you know, it's it's the three C's of clarity, you know, competence and, and climate. Mm-hmm. And so my advice for leaders would be to think about those three things. Have you given your team or the individual enough clarity around what it is that you're asking them at that kind of micro level through to do they have sufficient clarity about what the vision is that the business is trying to achieve, you know, the goal that they're trying to achieve and are you doing enough to kind of continually remind them and focus them on that so they understand exactly where they fit in the system and what their role is to achieve the kind of broader goals. Uh, you know, and the next one there is around competence. You know, do they actually have the skills that are required in order to do what you're asking them to do? And do you as a leader need to, you know, invest in them in terms of further training or do you need to bring in people that have actually got those those right skills? And then the next one, you know, is around climate. You know, have you actually, you know, I mean, it's basic, you know, from the most basic level to, you know, are they actually in a comfortable working environment? You know, is it freezing cold and they're sitting on, you know, wooden chairs that, you know, they're, uh, they're uncomfortable all day through to actual what we would kind of in a more modern sense talk about culture? You know, is it actually a, a safe environment? Do they feel comfortable? Do they actually enjoy coming to work? And so, you know, my advice would be if you focus on those three things, giving your people that really kind of clear vision about what you're trying to achieve Make sure they've got the skills that they need to, you know, to do the job and that you're creating you know, a climate that encourages them to you know, achieve mm. and where they do feel empowered, they do feel valued. You know, that's quite simple. You know, if you just focus on those three things, then I think you know, you'd be surprised at what you can achieve. And if you're not achieving success because you're focused on performance, if you're not getting the performance you want, ignoring the kind of business management aspects that maybe you're not you know, the business structure or strategy isn't right. But in terms of human performance, if you're not getting what you want out of people, your people, it's probably because one of those three things, one of, or if not two, mm. are deficient or, or need some attention. Yeah. I've never heard that before, but I can see that it's got... Uh, it's really powerful. When you talked about clarity, I can see the great clarity that you get by having that perspective. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, how do you simplify things? Mm. You know, I, th- I think, you know, in today's day and age, there's a lot of, I think, you know, we can kind of get too caught up in, 
the art and science of, of leadership or what have you. But for me, what I have found over time is if I can distill things, I do a lot of things. I talk about things in threes, you know, in that case, the three C's. Mm. Earlier, I talked about, you know, that more functional approach to leadership about, you know, task needs, group needs, you know, yeah. and, you know, kind of the individual needs. Again, you know, in, in threes, if you can just kind of really distill it down and reduce some of the complexity around some of these, I, I think it makes it far easier for us to, when we're under pressure, and we're, you know, feeling overwhelmed, if you can just distill it down to something quite basic yeah. that we're able to, to focus on, I think that that is always critical. Yeah. And a key enabler of that is being present enough to recognise you need to step back, get on the balcony, take a helicopter view, whatever it is, whatever works for you, get off the bridge, whatever it is, to get that time and perspective, even if it just means taking yourself away for 15, 20 minutes outside the room of what's going on, just to have that conversation with yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an important aspect that we probably haven't spoken about is I think, you know, to, to be a good leader, you have to also take care of yourself. And I think if you are looking for high performance in your team, you have to be focused on high performance for yourself as well. And I think, you know, getting that balance right. I certainly learned this lesson the hard way. When I was at, at Foreign Affairs, I had an absolutely shocking work-life balance, which is honestly part of the reason why I got into doing landscape photography, because it, for me, it's an excuse to get outdoors and, and travel. But what I think I found was by not having that work-life balance, you know, my own performance started to suffer. So I think as leaders, we have to make sure that we're in the best, you know, physical and mental, you know, state that, that we can be in. And that does sometimes mean stepping away, you know, taking a break, stepping away from the situation or prioritizing our own health and well-being. Because the better position that we are in, we're going to be on our A game, which is what our people who deserve from us and if we don't do that then we're letting our team and our our people down so i think that's probably something that maybe i certainly think you know in my early kind of military you know leadership training it wasn't enough focus on us being in our best physical and mental state in order to be able to make sure that then we're able to deliver for our people Mm. and that's really important i think and there's probably a greater awareness of that now but i still think probably not not enough and enough leaders don't prioritize their own well-being Mm. and that that will impact their people. Well, what I'm admiring, I guess, in this conversation, Scott, is that balance that you have between the highly creative taking of a photograph in the landscape of this beautiful country and then sort of leading the team and and those perspectives you bring to leadership. So thank you for being on the podcast today. And uh, we want to finish up with the rapid-fire questions. Okay. Get you to fill in the blank. So the first one is leadership is blank. Leadership's an... I guess it's the art and the science of how you, you know, motivate and inspire a team to you know, achieve performance or an outcome that you know, wouldn't otherwise have been achieved, i.e. You know, the leader has made a difference. You know, that in the absence of that person, that result wouldn't have been able to be achieved. But it's really about getting the most out of your people. Great. And the next question, what's, uh, is there a go-to book on leadership for you, one that you're reading now or one that's always been on the shelf that you pull out occasionally? Uh, look, there's plenty. One that stands out to me just more recently is it's a book called Let My People Go Surfing. Okay. And it's uh, by the founder of uh, Patagonia, which is an outdoor clothing brand. And he was probably a little bit before his time, you know, as a business in respect of understanding uh, it's a very values-driven, you know, company, uh, very, you know, environmentally focused. But, you know, it was one of the first businesses in the US that, you know, let when women were returning to work, let them bring their kids to work and things like that. And I think it's an interesting business book, but I also think it's very interesting from a leadership perspective about how you can build a business that is very, very values driven, but you can still achieve great business outcomes. I think a lot of people struggle with the idea that, you know, if they're very, very strongly values driven, that, you know, the business performance won't follow. And so for me, yeah, it's a really interesting book around recognizing that you can kind of have both you can be quite strong in terms of that values foundation but you can achieve great business outcomes as well yeah great wish i'd known blank earlier in my career it probably goes back to my earlier point the value of understanding people's backstory Mm. you know the more that you can understand an individual their situation and how they have formed into what they are i think you are far able to get a lot more out of them as a result and just be a better boss to them as a result because you're far more sympathetic to their situation and empathetic as well. Yeah, great. You get a call from a team member, crisis just erupted in your company organisation. What are your first words to that person? Yeah, uh, what do you need from me? I guess my thinking on that is if someone's in a crisis and they need, if it's that bad, 
then they are right there and right now, you know, if it's a life-threatening situation or what have you, they're not going to be jumping on the phone to me. They're going to be trying to sort it out at the sharp end. If they're jumping on the phone to me, they probably they probably need something. You know, they need reassurance that the decision that they've made is right or they need some other kind of support or they need me to do something. Yeah. And it might be – so I think it's about recognising, giving understanding that they've probably got the actual situation on the ground sorted at that period of time but they obviously need something from me. I'm very, I think, you know, we use the word kind of crisis, I guess, and maybe this is the ex-military kind of mindset from me, but I think we use the word kind of crisis a little bit too frequently in, in today's day and age. I There's very little that actually requires an immediate response. I think, you know, there's this tendency, you know, built by the, the media in part or influenced by the media that, you know, we have to respond to a media query or we have to respond to something straight away and I think, you know, just stepping back and, and pausing, you actually realize that unless, you know, someone's life is in actual direct imminent threat, we probably don't necessarily have to make a decision this very second. And so the other part of my advice, if someone called me in that case, is just probably just trying to slow them down a little bit so mm. that if someone's life is in immediate danger, we don't, we can slow this down. We don't have to make a decision straight away. Mm. And is it as much of a crisis or an or does it require an immediate decision from me or input from me straight away? Or can we actually kind of just sit on this and you know, take some time to, to think about it? So I think that's an important role for leaders is to try and kind of calm the troops a little bit sometimes where what they may think is is a crisis or they may think requires immediate attention. Often, you know, when you're sitting up there in that slightly bigger picture, you realize, hey, I just need to kind of keep everyone calm here. We just need to slow down and think this through. And that goes to, I guess, that role of leadership, which is to create the culture. And, you know, if you're creating that culture where stuff's going to come up and we'll, we'll choose a response is far better than sort of going to panic mode. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the role that we have as leaders in that. And I think often in that time of crisis, people do look towards their leader. I certainly know you know, during my time, you know, in the Middle East, you know, with, with war in Iraq and things like that, that, you know, there was this often, you know, this very sense that, you know, this is urgent, we have to kind of solve this problem and it has to be, I need an answer, you know, right now. And, you know, the people that I saw that were quite good as leaders in, in some of those situations were those that were just like, hey, it's all right, we've seen this before, we know how to deal with this, let's just kind of, again, bring back to how we've trained, how we know how to deal with this, we don't have to be quite rash and, and go off and in a different direction to what we would otherwise do. And I think it's those leaders that are able to just bring that sense of calm to that situation at that time and bring everyone back to more reasoned decision-making rather than operating out of, you know, kind of fear or, or excitement or what have you, which is mm. when we as human beings tend to make decisions that perhaps, you know, aren't the best ones on reflection, that it seems like it's the right idea at the time. But if we as a leader can just calm everyone down and, and make more considered, more rational decisions, we'll end up with a better result. And I think that is a skill in, a, in itself, you know, because I think as a leader, mm. if you're surrounded by everyone kind of yelling and screaming at you, wanting an answer right now, the tendency is to kind of respond to that situation at the time versus I think, you know, a really skilled leader is able to kind of kind of just cancel that noise a little bit, mm. slow their own decision-making down and then, you know, convey that to others. And I think that is a especially in those industries or those sectors where, you know, maybe crises of that nature can arise more often. Those that do well are able to slow the situation down a little bit. Yeah. Actually, slowing down is often the quickest way to make a good decision. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's that saying, I think it's attributed to the Navy SEALs, but I've seen it pop up a, a little bit lately, which is slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Mm. And I think when you sit down and you you think about that statement a little bit it is very very true and i think about it even in our own business you know think about you know us last year when we're doing lots of jigsaw puzzles all those kind of things you know the if you don't slow down and, and make things smooth you introduce errors or you make a mistake especially you know if you're doing in our case online fulfillment of orders or what have you you make one mistake that the catch-up of that and what you've got to do to rectify that error mm. actually slows you down way more so just being really smooth, slow is, is smooth, and that smoothness is fast because you're no longer having to kind of rectify errors or issues that, that arise down track, and that actually ultimately is actually quicker. So, mm. yeah, I, I've only recently come across that quote, and I don't know why I haven't come across it earlier, but mm. for me, it's yeah, it's, it's really true. It's quite powerful. 
So my last question is the go-to quote on leadership, but you might have already given it to me. <laughs> oh, look, I think my answer on that one's probably going to be quite boring. Okay. It's just lead by example. Right. You know, I think that is, for me, that is something that I was taught probably back when I was, you know, at high school and it's stuck with me ever since. And mm. I look at what I think, you know, my own experiences where I've been quite successful as a leader and, and what I've seen in others is, you know, those leaders that lead by example are very, very powerful because I think, you know, one of the biggest things that can undermine a leader is when a leader is asking something of their people that those people then don't see that leader doing. Mm. It's probably one of the quickest ways, I think, to undermine respect and to undermine a leader. And it is so, so critical that the people that you are leading you know, have trust and faith and respect in you and you cannot build respect if you're asking them to do something that, you know, you're not willing to do. Mm. At its most basic level, you know, when you're more junior, especially, you know, in the, in the military, I think, you know, a leader needs to be very, very good at that kind of task. Mm. By the time you get to, to more senior positions, you may not be in a physical capacity to be able to do what you're doing of your people. But if they know that, you know, earlier in your career, you were able to do that, you know, they, they've seen that. But equally, I think it's very, very important that at that more senior level, you're now more talking less about kind of task-orientated roles and more about values and culture and things like that. You talked about, you know, the quote before about, you know, the standard you walk past is the standard you set. I think, you know, the more senior you become, that is more and more critical because your role higher up in an organisation is more focused on trying to set that culture. And if you just mm. do not do that, then people are not going to follow you. And yeah. it's... So for me, that's the quote that has stuck with me and it's something that I really, really, truly believe in and really try and live by, you know, in a leadership sense. And like I said, I know it's boring. I know it's not like some really, truly inspiring kind of quote from someone with a great academic background more than mine. But I just think, again, coming back to something quite simple, mm. it's a really good foundation, I think. Yeah. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time this morning. People want to find you in terms of your landscape photography. Where would they go to find that? Yeah, so look, so two ways. They can find us online at uh, scottlego.com. So that's our online store, has uh, all our products, all our artworks uh, on there. Or if they're in Canberra, they can come into the gallery. So currently we're in uh, Kingston, so at 45 mm -hmm. Jardine Street. So if they're in Canberra, they can pop in. We're open uh, seven days a week, but yeah. always open online. So yeah, scottlego.com for that. Good. Well, thanks, Scott. Thanks again, and uh, look forward to catching up sometime soon. Yeah, no, likewise, Martin. A pleasure. Hopefully, uh, there's been some comments in there that help some people on their own leadership journey. Absolutely. Thanks, mate. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com, where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it. <laughs>